when you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking, <laughs> there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this fall. Now, Rob. Friend, if you're afraid, you'll have to overlook it. Besides, you knew this opportunity when you took it. People drink the super sauce and throw the bag of sour loss, and people bring them in alive and kick it. There was one thing you should learn when there was no one else's turn to call. Oh, yeah, I Rob. everyone, this is OTR Rob. I'm recording this on October 13th, two days before my birthday, where I will be 72 years old. I can't believe that. Anyway, I'm here to introduce The Adventures of Sam Spade, starring, starring <laughs> Stephen Dunn. This episode is from 1951, April 13th. I hope it wasn't Friday for them. And the episode is entitled The Civic Pride Caper. And after that is The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from August 27th, 1949. The Eager Witness and Mr. and Mrs. North from 1943 from March 3rd, 1943. Murder by the Book. Enjoy all these and I'll see you all back here next week. God willing, and the creeks don't rise. I try to keep my introductions brief. If there's anything I need to bring up, I will normally. But enjoy the show, and have a great day. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sam Spade Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Oh, you... What's the matter now? Oh, nothing. You just up and leave and don't say where you're going. And I'm only your secretary and I'm the last one to know about it. And everybody else in town knows more than I do. And I wasn't here Enough, before. enough, enough. Wait a minute. How did everybody in town know about it? Well, it was in the newspapers, that's all. In the society column, no less. Really? Well, imagine that. Flora Bell Frolic's column. Flora Bell. Mr. Spade, the notorious private detective, is vacationing at Westover as a guest of a promising young architect, Garrett Welch. Notorious, yet? Well, at least they spell my name right. I suppose you had a great time. Well, it was exciting. What did you do? Just talked over old times, F. Did a little hunting, little shooting. Did you bag anything? F, watch your language. Sam. I see you're shocked. Well, so was I. However, if you have nothing to do, hang around the office, and I will be down with several pages from my diary telling about the whole affair. I've titled them, The Civic Pride Caper. <laughs> NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer, director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all, starring Stephen Dunn in The Adventures of Sam Spade. thought you'd gone chicken and run out on me. You're part of this organization. You're going to bear the bitter with the sweet along with the rest of us. I know, but I always seem to get the bitter. Huh? Friday's when the sweet should be given out. Don't quibble. Don't quibble. This is a nasty job we have here. We might just as well sit down and get it over with. Care for a drink? You might need it. No, thanks. I don't need false bravery. <sighs> Lucky you. Well, are you ready? No, but we might as well start. 
Well, you know best. They fill it in to Garrett Welsh, room 212, Fairchild Building, Westover, California. From Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the Civic Pride Caper. Dear Garrett, I'd never been in Westover before, and I found it, on the surface at least, an attractive, bustling little city. The streets were clean, and the girls were sun-kissed and friendly. Add to that the $150 you sent me by mail, and you can imagine with what pleasant feelings I arrived. I found the Fairchild building easily enough, and room 212, well, I couldn't miss it. There were sounds of vigorous activity coming out through the transom. And when I opened the door, two men were engaged in a fight. One was big and one was little. I didn't know which one was my client, so I automatically reached for the big guy. What do you think you're doing? What's it all about? Oh, ask him, he'll tell you. All right, what's the story? I was being foully and unreasonably attacked by this misguided citizen. I ought to kill you. That's what I ought to do. That's what everybody ought to do. Hold still. Why? Oh, let him go. Let him go. Beat it, Carlson. Wait until you can catch me alone in some dark alley. Don't think I won't. Don't you think I won't. I'm sure you will. I'm going to catch you every place and every time I can. (laughs) Well, I take it your name is Garrett Welch. It is. It is. And I want to thank you, friend. Nothing. You rescued me from a rather unhappy breathing. And your mouth is kind of cut up. Oh? Oh. There's nothing. Nothing I can't take care of. Drink? I never touch you. Oh. <laughs> you. you. You might have might have noticed I've already had a few drinks today. <laughs> well, it helps me forget. And it also keeps me from thinking. There you are. No, thanks. Uh, my name is Spade. Why did you send for me? Bodyguard? No, no, no. <laughs> Let them have their fun. I don't mind. Maybe I even deserve it. Look, you're paying for my time. Why don't we uh, get with it, huh? Hmm? Oh, sure. Why not? Go ahead. Come over here to the window. There. Look out there. Where? The far corner. Oh, you mean that building? Pile of rubbish is a better description. Well, what happened? Fire? No. It just collapsed one night, last week. There were more than 3,000 people in it at the time. Five of them were killed. I don't know how many injured. That's too bad. How did it happen? It just collapsed. Another drink? No, thanks. Pardon me? It was a municipal auditorium built to honor the war dead. It cost over a million dollars. I was the architect. I was picked by the townspeople for the singular honor of designing the Fond Memorial. Well, now they have something to remember. What'd you do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. Somebody cheated in the building of it. Somebody didn't follow my plans. I don't know who it is. I don't know who it was. Or just where to place the blame. So, you're a private investigator? What can you do? Get you some black coffee and ask you some questions. He gave me a list of everybody in town who had something to do with the building First off, I called on a man named Howard Kessley Whose construction company had the contract for erecting the auditorium Kessley lived in an elegant house on a well-guarded estate And after they took my gun away from me, they let me in I waited in a room tastefully decorated with original oil paintings and oriental rugs And eventually, a football hero-type man walked in you from the insurance company? No, I'm a private detective, Sam Spade. Who are you working for? Garrett Welch. Huh. That's a laugh. Funny. Well, what do you want? 
Look, you built that auditorium. Have you any idea why it fell down? Maybe it just got tired. I don't know. Aren't you interested? We're looking into it now. Who's we? My company engineers. That Garrett Welch. An architect. <laughs> we should have had somebody who knew what he was doing. Do you have any copies of the building specifications that I might look at? Sure. Yeah, I got nothing to hide. You can go back and tell Garrett Welch that the best thing he can do is get out of town. Or somebody tries to knock him off and succeed. Yeah. Here. There's a copy of the plans. Look at it all you want. You'll find I did what I was supposed to do. I got my gun back from the guards and left with the building specifications tucked under my arm. They didn't mean a thing to me, of course. I'd only asked for them to see whether he'd refuse to show them. But out of curiosity, I enrolled them just for a look before dumping them into the ash can. And I noticed something. The last page was signed and approved by the city building inspector, a man named Albert Mitchell. Well? Uh, well, I don't usually receive callers at this hour, but you're a little better looking than the ordinary caller. Come in. She was slim and auburn-haired and wore an insolent smile that was interesting and a clinging silk thing that was interesting. She looked me up and down and she took so long at it. Okay. Okay, what is it? Magazine? Uh, I... The gas meter? Or did you just lose your way? I'd uh, like to talk to Albert Mitchell. Oh, he's a dull conversationalist. You wouldn't have any fun. Well, I wasn't exactly looking for laughs, Mrs. Uh, you are Mrs. Mitchell? More or less. Right now, less. Soda or water? What? And your drink. Oh, thanks, but I took the pledge last Halloween. What did you want to talk to Al about? Well, what else? The auditorium that collapsed. Well, he stepped out for a while. Why don't we just make ourselves comfortable? I uh, have a standard answer when I'm on duty, thanks anyway. Duty? You a cop? I've never seen you around this town before. Private type investigator, Sam Spade. My name's Kitty. Uh, you don't have to worry about Al busting in on us. I don't think he'll be back this week. That's what I thought, you holding open house and all. What's the matter? The pressure got too heavy for him? Look, Sam, they had a hearing a couple of days ago. It was all decided. Nobody was to blame. I think Al went fishing or something. Where is he? How should I know? I'm only his wife. But you know what they say about a man who runs. Yeah. So why don't you stick around? You don't look like a coward to me. Well, when it comes to redheads, I really am. So long, Kitty. But... Oh, by the way, if Al does ever show up, tell him I took a room at the Embassy Hotel. I'd like him to call me. I won't tell him a thing. Come back here, you coward. Hey, Sam! I went down to the wreckage of the auditorium. It was late and the streets were quiet and deserted. I walked through the twisted shell of the building, striking matches and looking around. I didn't know what I was looking for, but apparently I wasn't the only one visiting the scene of the crime. I was standing just inside the gutted remains of what was once the lobby when it happened. Gunfire cut through to the back of the building. I ran toward the noise, and when I turned the back corner, I saw a cloud of plaster dust where the shots had apparently been fired. There were no people or cars in sight, but on the sidewalk, on hands and knees, was a man. Rats. Rats. Double-crossing dirty rats. Save me. Don't let me die. Kitty. <laughs> 
grabbed my legs and tried to pull himself up. His face was a gargoyle of pain. I reached down to help him, but he slipped back to the sidewalk, dead. Four bullets had gone through his back. A billfold fell out of his pocket. It was loaded with identification, and everything said Albert Mitchell, age 40. Occupation, building inspector. You are listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. chimes mean good times on NBC. This Sunday, Theater Guild on the Air presents an exciting one-hour adaptation of the Broadway stage comedy Light Up the Sky. Starring in this Theater Guild production are Joan Bennett, Sam Levine, and Thelma Ritter. And on Sunday, you're invited to another hour-and-a-half broadcast of The Big Show. Starring Eddie Arnold, Jack Carson, Eddie Cantor, Olivia de Havilland, Martha Ray, Meredith Wilson, and many more. Your MC, of course, is the glamorous and unpredictable Tallulah. And now back to the Civic Pride Caper, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. A good many other people had heard the sound of Albert Mitchell's assassination, and before long, a crowd had gathered. Among them were several minions of the law. They took two people in tow, the dead Mitchell and the live Spade. The Westover Police Department had themselves a fine time over me. It seems I was hired out-of-town killer and therefore eligible to be questioned all night. They worked hard at it, but in the morning they had to admit defeat and release me. I think they only did it because they didn't want to pay for my breakfast. By then I was pretty mad, and at 10 o'clock I walked into the mayor's office and demanded an interview. I got it. The whole thing, Mr. Spade, was regrettable. But after all, you are a stranger here. And when a man is killed and someone happens to be in on the scene... Questions have to be asked. Your Honor, I'll let it pass in the interests of law enforcement. Good. You, uh, uh, our report on you from San Francisco gives you quite a reputation as an investigator. Uh, do you have any theories that might uh, help us in this murder of Mitchell? Well, I could hazard an expert guess that it's tied in with a building scandal, the auditorium collapse. By the way, what's being done officially to fix the blame for that? Uh, the city council held its investigation of the unfortunate affair last week. And as far as we can determine... No one is directly responsible. No one? No, come, come, Your Honor. Are you questioning our civic procedure? <sighs> oh, well, maybe you're right. Maybe we've been too easygoing. We're all neighbors here. Yes, I'm friends. conducting an investigation for a client who certainly has a right to know what's going on insofar as a good many citizens seem to feel he's to blame. Oh, yes, Mr. Welch. Well, he's not to blame. No one is. You must pardon my abruptness, Mr. Spade, but the events of the past week have been a little yes, more... Yes, yes, I know. Tell me, Albert Mitchell, as building inspector, must have approved the building of the auditorium. Now, was he a reliable man? Yes. Wait a minute. You don't think... I about... think he was killed by somebody who wanted him to keep his mouth shut. Now, what about the contractor, Howard Kessley? Kessley? Born here. Brought up here. He's built about one-third of the structures in Westover. Uh -huh. Every one of them, except the auditorium, is standing today. No, I, I don't think you can build up a case... I'm just examining the possibilities, Your oh. Honor. You have to begin with the people who had something to gain from this thing. Where there's graft, there might be murder. Where are the purchase orders for the materials used in this building? That was the first question I asked. I was told they were destroyed with all the other useless paperwork 
that accumulated from the construction job. Oh, great, great. That certainly makes it convenient for somebody. Mr. Spade, I, I don't wish to... And I can't believe, as you apparently do, that this town's population is... is crooked and rotten. So if I come across any information that will help clear the good name of Garrett Welsh, you can be sure that I'll be happy to bring it to your attention. Until then, I bid you good day, sir. I could understand Mayor Sullivan's desire to protect the fair name of his city, but I had to take a meaner view of at least one Westover citizen. I found out where Albert Mitchell did his banking and misrepresenting myself as a collection agent pried into his holdings. Let me see now, Mr. Humboldt. I really shouldn't give out this kind of information, but in your case, when you have a claim against the estate, I... Oh, yes, yes, here it is. Uh... He has $300 in his account. That's all. What kind of deposits did he make? Oh, just paychecks mostly. He was a 7,500 a year man. Every Friday he deposited 150. Any deposits larger at any time? Oh, yes. Four deposits of 5,000 each in the past uh, year. Well, what do you know? As I recall Mr. Mitchell saying, there were payments from the state he inherited. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Carter. You'll hear from my company soon, I'm sure. Yes. Oh, uh, what was the name of your company again uh, for my records? Amalgamated Whistle. Oh, yes. A preferred. Oh, yes, of course. That inheritance gag was right out of the Kefauver investigation. An inheritance is paid in a lump sum, practically never in four payments of 5000 each. I didn't know whether Mrs. Mitchell was receiving, but I decided to find out. When I knocked at her door, all was quiet inside, but a second after my knock, there was a burst of sorrow. When she came to the door, there were two rather impossible-sized tears flowing down her face. For widow's weeds, she wore a black dress, tight, satin, and low-cut. Oh, Mr. Spade, I'm in no mood for talking now. Oh, just for a moment. May I come in? I guess so. I'm really kind of alone and lost. What is it you want? I must apologize for intruding on your bereavement, Mrs. Mitchell. I'm not usually as callous. Oh, that's all right. But I'm not sure I can help you any. I'm, I'm so broken up. What is it, Camphor? What? Whatever you use to make those tears. All right, so I can't really cry. I never have, but it's expected of me. Well, yeah, all right. In that case, I sympathize with you. What do you want? Kitty, your dear departed husband made 7500 a year and deposited 20000 in eight months. Now, what about it? I don't know anything about his money. All I know is that the bank told me he had only 300 left. What did he do with it? He spent it on other women. Oh, I see. So the artificial tears do make sense, I guess. No. No, you don't understand. It's not that simple. It's funny, Sam, because I really mean it. Oh, I know how stupid I look in these clothes. And I did use camphor on my eyes because I wanted to cry. I wanted to cry for all the good days and the good years Al and I had. But the bad years kept getting in between, and I couldn't do it. I like you better all the time, Kitty. I knew you were real pretty. Now it turns out you're pretty real. I really loved him, and he loved me. But we kicked it away. Because we both wanted more excitement than this town or his salary could give us. There was no place to go. We just didn't get along. He was out spending his money on other women, being a big shot. Uh, I can't blame him, though. I helped make him do it. 
What about the money? He got it for falsifying the auditorium inspection papers, didn't he? Well, he didn't get it for inventing television. Who paid him? Sam, don't ask me anymore. Well, you do know where the 20000 came from, don't you, Kitty? Don't, Sam. I'm scared. You know what you ought to do? You ought to come back to San Francisco with me. Let me help you get a job there. You can make a fresh start. You're not kidding. I give you my word. I ought to have my head examined for trusting you, but I'm going to do it. Al got that money from the Central Cement Company for, quote, an advisory capacity, unquote. Mm-hmm. You know who owns the Central Cement Company? Howard Kessling. Warm, but not quite. His brother. Last night when Al showed up in town, he was gunning for trouble. Why? He said they were going to make a fall guy out of him and that he wasn't going to take the blame for anybody. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. But I think he ran out of money and wanted to make a touch in exchange for disappearing again. For good. And you think Kesley shot him or his brother? I can't think, and I don't know anything else. Now, do I get to San Francisco? I'll be back for you. All right, but make it fast. And don't leave me here, because if anything happens to me, Sam, it'll be on your conscience. She walked to the door with me and kissed me on the cheek. And it was nice. No more than that. It was nice. Next stop, the Central Cement Company office. A statement of Howard Kesley's brother, Ralph. I'll explain it to you in simple terms. We supplied cement for a lot of buildings in this part of the country. When you want to build something, you submit a bid. When you want to know what kind of a bid to submit, you ask an expert. Mitchell was our expert. And we didn't expect him to work for nothing. You mean Mitchell tipped you off as to what other firms were bidding? Well, call it anything you want. It's done all the time. I found Garrett Welsh, my architect client, slumped over his desk, much the worse for drink, and it took a good half hour with coffee and wet cloths to bring him around to something resembling normal. I was... I was proud of that building, Mr. Spade. As proud once as I am ashamed of it now. I spent four years at a prominent American college and two years apprenticeship with a great architect to prepare myself to come back here and make this the most beautiful city in the West. Well, you must have watched them build it. What went wrong? That's a point. I wasn't here. They sent me to Chicago to study. And I bit for it. What they really wanted was for me to be out of the way. Who are they? The city council, Oh, why bother? Just tell me how much I owe you and we'll just forget it. Nobody's going to indict anybody for anything. Well, somebody's responsible for the building and for Mitchell's murder, and we'll find him. We? Yeah. If you'll lay off that bottle for a while and work with me, maybe we can do it. All right. All right. No more booze. I'll stop feeling sorry for myself and start getting mad. Hey, where you going? I'm going to start at the top. I'm going to try to get the mayor to help. You say you've turned up something, Mr. Spade? A lot of something, Your Honor. I've ferreted out copies of the purchase orders for the materials used in that building. They were generally inferior and below the quality required by sound engineering and the law. Oh, you can't mean it. I do. You can inform your district attorney that in a matter of two or three days, I will move for an indictment of several people in this community for gross criminal negligence. Now, I want to know whether or not I'll have your full cooperation. There's no question of that. I'll cooperate with you fully to prosecute Thank any... you, Your Honor, and good day. Just a minute. Yeah? About uh, Howard Kessley. What about him? Do you still consider that he is subject to suspicion? The families of the five people who died in the ruins would think anybody who was concerned in the building project were subject to suspicion, Your Honor. Mr. Spade, you you know about politics. Certain people contributed campaign campaign funds and got me votes. Kessley. I, I've been in a difficult position. I, I've been weak, perhaps. Maybe I haven't wanted to look too closely at certain possibilities in this... This horrible affair. But I promise you I won't stop now. It doesn't matter what happens. My first duty is to the citizens of this town. Well said, Your Honor. 
Just tell the same thing to the other members of the city council. Tell them that if I kick the lid off this garbage can, it's going to make Westover smell pretty bad. You'll hear from me, Mr. Spade. I guarantee you. In the course of the next two hours, I told the same story to the newspaper, the police, a couple of soda jerks, a waitress, and almost anybody else who would listen. And before the day was out, the results started coming in. Garrett Welch's office and my room at the Embassy Hotel were both ransacked. Somebody started shadowing me, and uh, I had a mysterious phone call offering me money to get out of town. I refused and hung up. During that day, I stayed mostly out in the open in conspicuous parts of town. But when night fell, I knew I'd need to watch my step. Garrett Welch and I holed up in his office with the door locked and my gun out on the desk. Around 11, we got a little action. Well, speaking. Yeah? Yeah, okay. It's for you, Spade. Hello? Sam, this is Kitty Mitchell. I'm in trouble. What kind? Three men were just here. They said I gave you some purchase orders. I don't know anything about them, but they said if I didn't get them back from you by midnight, they'd kill me. Who were they? I don't know. I don't know. Just men. If you've got them, give them to me, Sam. I don't want to die. Look, hang up. Call the police and ask them for protection. Sam, I'm afraid. Why don't you give me the papers? Get in a taxi cab and come up to Garrett Welsh's office. We'll talk it over. I'm afraid to do that. Well, you'll have to. I can't leave here. I'm waiting for somebody. Who? I'm not sure yet. Somebody threatened Mitchell's wife. She's coming up here. Well, I think we have enough to do taking care of ourselves. Uh, who's that? Go on, you answer it. Then uh, step to one side. I'll keep you covered. Okay. Don't make one wrong move. I'm not going to, Spade. I came here to talk. Kessley? Yes. Who's with you, Kessley? Nobody. I'm alone and unarmed. Come in. Uh, I'm watching you from behind, Kessley. I know it. I just came to talk. All right, talk. Spade, you allegedly have information as to why the auditorium collapsed, killing five people. Suppose I do. Well, I came to make a deal with you. We're not making deals. I think you'll like this one. I'll give you all the positive information you want for one thing. Namely? A 48-hour head start out of town. Why should we give you that? Because nobody, least of all myself, thought the building would collapse. It's true I used inferior materials, but I had to. What does that mean? There's a man in this town. suddenly kicked wide and a blaze of bullets flew across the room. Kesley's mouth opened in shock, his knees buckled, and he pitched forward, bouncing off the desk of the floor. A tall, silver-haired gentleman was behind the gun. That caught him shoulder high, spun him around, the gun fell out of his hand, and Welch and I were on him in a second. All right, all right. I've done all I'm going to do. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. Well, Your Honor, you're better off than Kesley. Kesley didn't want to do it. But I had something on his brother and told him I'd I'd send him to jail. We saved $100,000 on the cheap supplies we used in that building. Yeah, when I showed up, Kesley was afraid he was going to take the rap alone. He was afraid he'd end up like Albert Mitchell, right? Yes, yes, I I killed Mitchell. He he wanted uh, more money. You killed him, you... Kitty, Kitty, don't put it down! She had come in while we were talking and picked up the gun Mayor Sullivan had dropped. Her one shot hit him in the chest. Then she let the gun slip through her fingers and just stood there. Then you know what? <laughs> she cried. Real tears. Period. End of report. Sam, what an awful tragedy. It was indeed, Eff. Of course, in a few minutes, the place was full of police and we turned her over. Well, what do you think is going to happen to her, Sam? I'd rather not think about that, Effie. Now, how about typing it up? <laughs> Three chimes mean good times on NBC. 
There's fun this Sunday with two of your favorite families, the Blandings and the Harrises. Mr. and Mrs. Blanding stars Cary Grant and Betsy Drake in the title roles as the owners of the famous Dream House. And the Phil Harris-Alice Faye Show brings you Phil and Alice with more of their merry antics, plus Frankie Remley, Brother William, and the entire cast. You're invited this Sunday. Well, I'll take your word for it. I'm not going to read it again. Why did the mayor come in and shoot the building contractor in front of witnesses? Why, he threw away everything you worked so hard to steal. Why? That is a good question. If I... Oh, save by the knock. Come in. This is Sam Spade's office. It is? I'm Lyle Rooks. You expect me to believe that? I'm Western editor of Radio Television Mirror Magazine. Well, you know best... I just wanted to tell you that in our annual awards poll, nationwide, the American listeners have chosen Steve Dunn as their favorite detective. Steve Dunn? Not me? Be quiet, Sam. So here, sir, is your citation. You may want to frame it. Put it up in your office. Why? Thank you. Goodbye. Well, Steve Dunn, who is... The man that plays you on the radio, Sam. (sighs) Oh, he's handsome. Well, do you love him better than you love me when I'm burning up with passion for you? Are you really burning up, Sam? Well, I'm beginning to smolder a little. Come here and tell me about love. Oh, well, I don't know much about it, Sam. Not as much as I'd like to know. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry, I don't have a teacher's permit for the state of California. (laughs) Good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Stephen Dunn. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. Also in the cast were Shirley Mitchell, Jack Crucian, Sidney Miller, Paul Fries, Herb Rawlinson, and Lou Merrill. Script for tonight's adventure by John Michael Hayes. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. again next week, same time, for another adventure with Sam Spade. Tomorrow, enjoy the exciting Man Called X on NBC. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This started with a man on trial for his life and an A1 citizen eager to testify. But there it was interrupted. And it wasn't until I found a corpse in a bubbling bath, gunplay in the woods, and lots of blackmail that the real eager witness had a chance to talk. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Eager Witness. 
Court of the State of California and the Court of the County of Los Angeles now in session. The Honorable Albert Winston, judge presiding. Everybody rise. It was the case of the people versus the oft-arrested, never-convicted, smooth Earl Jernigan, sometimes bookie, charged in the first degree with a month-old killing of a kindly, gray-haired horse trainer named Kurt Hopper, who had once almost been my client. It was the afternoon of the fourth day of the trial, and the prosecutor for the state had already built an almost airtight case against the alleged gambler when my turn finally came. To further substantiate the state's claim that Earl Jernigan did willfully and with malice of forethought take the life of the deceased Kurt Harper. Will Mr. Philip Marlowe take the stand? Raise your right hand. Promise to tell truth, the whole truth, not about truth, help you, God. I do. State your name and occupation. Philip Marlowe, private detective. Next stand. Mr. Marlowe, on the morning of the 30th day of July last, the day on which the late Kurt Harper was murdered, were you hired as a private detective by the said Mr. Harper? I was. And at that time, Mr. Marlowe, did Mr. Harper state his reason for hiring you? He did. He wanted me to act as his personal bodyguard on the following day when he planned to drive to San Francisco. Did he say why he needed a personal bodyguard? He did. He told me he was uh, afraid for his life. That he refused the gambler's demand that he drug a certain racehorse a week earlier. That that gambler had threatened to kill him. I see. Now, Mr. Marlowe, did Mr. Harper name that gambler? Yes, he did. Who was it? Earl Jernigan. Thank you. No further questions, Your Honor. Counsel for the defense. Counsel for the defense waves cross-examination, Your Honor. The witness is excused. Didn't make sense. No cross-examination. Because from the opening adjective, the counsel for the defense, a dapper item named Calder, who always appeared in French cuffs, gray gabardine, and a cocky, uninviting smile had raved, ranted, and practically spit at each witness the state had presented. So the courtroom was left with a tingling impression that Earl Jernigan's attorney had something of a surprise waiting up his legal sleeve. Later, when Calder was on his feet and addressing the jury, that something started out fast. Now that the state has taken the trouble to offer so much circumstantial evidence, so much hearsay, rumor, conjecture, now will I smash all of that with the testimony of one man. One man known to all of you as an outstanding citizen of this city. A prominent real estate broker. An unimpeachable witness eager to testify. Mr. Leonard Gaines. It worked. Landed in each and every lap like a live grenade and exploded all the way around at once. And when the eminent Mr. Gaines, gray at the temples, maybe 45, a neat and expensive midnight blue flannel with giant stickpin to match, took the stand. And in his own meeting of the board, tone of voice told the court that Earl Jernigan had spent the entire day and night of July 30th last with him at his Malibu Beach home. The prosecuting attorney's jaw dropped to his chest and he stared dumb. day or night did Mr. Jernigan ever leave my home. And as for the hour of the murder, 8 o'clock in the evening, we were having dinner. After that, we played gin rummy until, oh, until midnight. Are you sure of that, Mr. Gaines? The hour of your dinner, I mean. I am positive, Mr. Calder. No, you can't oh, be. You're Miss Harper, order in the court, please. No, I won't be quiet. I won't anymore. Miss Harper, quiet, order, order. This court is 
Soda, mister? Yeah, I guess so. Oh, wait a minute, baby. I think I'm going to have company. Mr. Marlowe, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm... Gail Harper, yeah, I know. <laughs> what I don't know is why you're not doing 30 days on a rock pile for that rumpus you just kicked up in court. Would you like a soft drink? No, thanks. All right, just one, baby. Jerk. The judge said he understood and left me off with a short lecture, which is what I had counted on. Oh. You mean all that fireworks in there was planned, not just spontaneous combustion? That's right. I had a half time. <laughs> Look, Mr. Marlowe, will you work for me? Oh, well, now, look, will baby... Will you help I... me prove that Mr. Leonard Gaines is alive and that Earl Jernigan did kill my father? Now, take it easy, Gail. It's a big mouthful, you know. Mr. I... Marlowe, listen, please. There isn't much time. we got to prove this tonight or never. By noon tomorrow with the outside, the case will go to the jury. Okay, what do you want me to do? Take over where I left off. But first, let's get out of here. All right. And never mind that drink, miss. Where do we start, honey? With Leonard Gaines' ex-wife, Debbie Jansen. Here's a snapshot of her. Mm. They were divorced about six months ago, Mr. Marlowe, and she wasn't very happy about it. No, huh? Made you figure she was your in? Yes, and I was right. Mr. Marlowe, it took eavesdropping, bribery, second-story work, but I found out plenty. I'll bet you did. Like what? Oh, hold it, Gail. Light's red. Like the fact that Debbie and a guy called Eugene Mowry are putting a bite on Gaines for $20,000. Blackmail, Mr. Marlowe, with the payoff schedule to be made sometime tonight. Right now, she's staying at the Sunlin Sulphur Springs Lodge out in the valley. Gaines used to go there once in a while for his arthritis. And the why of the whole business is a letter Gaines once wrote to his ex-wife. No fooling. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell me, what's that to do with Jernigan's trial and Gaines being alive? Oh, it's green now. I think there's a connection, because yesterday I overheard Debbie tell this Maui something about Gaines' scheduled appearance at the trial today, and... <gasps> oh, Mr. Hey, hey! Those jerk California drivers... The man behind the wheel. What about him? That thin face, blonde hair. I've seen him before. I know he was trying to hit one of us. Oh, fine. Well, that'll keep things from getting dull, won't it? Then, then you're gonna help me. Well, now, look, I... <laughs> uh, who could resist you, baby? Okay, tonight I check in at the lodge at Sunland Sulphur Springs. Come on, let's get out of here. It was 8 o'clock and almost dark when I reached the foothills of the mountain range that separates the San Fernando Valley from L.A. proper and turned off onto a narrow dirt road that ran through a twisting gorge past a moon-faced watchman who asked no questions as he slowly opened a sagging wooden gate faintly labeled Sunland Sulphur Springs where Mother Nature's remedies bubbled from the earth private. It was another five minutes along the same dirt road uphill and through thick foliage before I was at a parking space out of my car and walking the last quarter of a mile toward the lodge itself that was spotted with widely separated cottages also sagging. And each tag, casa, and followed by something Spanish and hard to pronounce. Inside the place was cheap porch furniture and occasional threadbare rugs over scarred pine and deserted. Except for a sleepy old guy with thick-lidded eyes and an accordion-wrinkled face was slouched in a heap behind a sign on the reservation desk. The red Maynard Sharp, no less, night manager. When I gave him my name and said that both my rheumatism and I needed a rest, he came too, almost. Uh, Rumi, Mr. Marlowe. Well, let's see. Can let you have most any one of the cottages. Half of them are empty. 
things kind of slow this time of year. How slow can you get? You'd be surprised. Uh, how's about uh, Casa Francisco de Leon? Casa Francisco, hmm? Yeah, that'll be fine, Mr. Sharp. All righty, sir. Now, if you'll just sign the register here, I'll get your key. But uh, you As I signed my name, I checked yourself. the guest list quickly. And the next second found what I wanted. Deborah Jansen. And next to that, and in a different hand, her cottage for the night. Uh, Casa Rolando de uh, Baron Dido. That's close enough. Well, anyway, it was all I needed. I took the key from Mr. Sharp, a misnomer if ever you heard one. Learned the location of my quarters, paid him in advance, and left. Outside, I turned to my right, past a large open bath that smelled like rotten eggs and talked to itself like a junior Vesuvius, as more warm sulfur waters, equally unpleasant to smell, bubbled from a pipe in the center. Beyond that was the first cottage, another casa I couldn't pronounce, and it stayed like that all the way down the line, until I reached the second one that showed light. It was the casa known as Rolando de Barandido. And when I moved closer and around to a window that was screen only, I knew that my client had done her eavesdropping well, because in the center of the room and putting on her coat was the ex-wife named Debbie, and standing nearby and holding on tight to the cigarette in his hand like it was support. Debbie, what had Mowry. to be the boyfriend, sure Eugene you know Mowry. You're sure that Gaines will go through with this all right? For the hundredth time, Eugene, yes, I'm positive. Can't you understand? He has to. Besides, $20,000 won't break him. It won't more than bend him a bit. Now, stop worrying. But I can't. Debbie, wh- why must you go alone? Now, why can't I go with you? Eugene, please, we've been over that. I told Leonard that I'd meet him in town at the Beverly Crest Hotel at 10 and alone. He agreed to also be alone. Except for the month. Debbie, you do handle things well. Come here, darling. The kiss for your brilliance. Oh, please, Eugene, there isn't time. Oh, what's the matter? Are my kisses losing their flavor at this point? Don't be a fool. Look, it's late, Eugene. It's after nine already. I've got to hurry. Now, go on. Go on, be a good boy and leave now. We shouldn't even be seen together tonight. Well, why not, Debbie? It's not smart. Here. Meet me at the tulip room, darling, at 11, as we promised. And Eugene, we'll have time and reason to relax. 20,000 bucks worth of reason. As Maori oozed toward the door, I slid away from the cottage and into the shadow of a clump of trees nearby. Stayed there as he walked out of sight down the road that led back to the parking space. Then a few minutes later, when Debbie clicked off the light and left, I moved out of hiding and started slowly after her at a safe distance. Until from someplace in the night, an ugly, snub-nosed automatic that belonged to someone blonde and thin-faced as a near-automobile accident stopped me cold. Where are you going, Jack? For air. I love to walk in the country at night, okay? I wouldn't know, Jack. I'm a city boy myself. But as long as that's what you want, it's Jake with me. As long as it's where it's good and dark. Now, go on. That way. Move. Far enough. Hold it. Turn around and face me. Why, so I can watch you pull the trigger? Never mind why. Just turn. Okay, turn it is. That's better. Now, one step closer. One step closer. Hey, what's that? Now, pleasant, my friend. Taking wing. Now, before I beat you in little pieces, let's have it. Who are you? Who do you work for and what do you want with me? 
Come on, gunman, talk. Okay. Okay, uh, no more. My name's Langley. Worked for Earl Jernigan. Oh? Uh, yeah, I've been watching you ever since the trial started. Jernigan didn't want you moving in on it. Which is why you tried to pick me off with a car when I was with Gail Harper this afternoon, huh? Come on! Yeah, 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 yeah that's why. Now, now, what are you going to do with me? For the time being, Buster Levy as is. Flat on your back, because I've still got to catch up with a lady before she reads a letter! City boy... just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, because of the sharp rise in America's birth rate during the war, we face a very serious educational crisis. Many communities will find that their schools lack sufficient teachers, classrooms, and facilities. Citizens must get together and work for better schools, more teachers. If we want all of our children to have a chance for a good education, we must take action now. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Eager Witness. It was strictly hit and run. I piled Langley into the Manzanita and didn't even wait to see him bounce. Instead, I took off through a gully that was a shortcut to my car. Because I knew that Jernigan's watchdog had nothing to offer compared with the hot-headed Debbie Jansen, who at the moment, no doubt, was well on her way to the Beverly Crest Hotel, and a blackmail rendezvous that was a cinch to wind up in the final destruction of the letter. And that was my theory. But I dropped it like a hot rock just as I crossed the path to the sulfur pool. Nothing but sulfur fumes and the thick gurgle of the springs until Sharp played his flashlight over the pool. Then we saw. Oh my gosh. And the water that was turning red from blood oozing around the knife in her look, back. Look, it's Miss Jansen. Come on, Pop, give me a hand. Let's get her out of there. Come on. Take it easy now. Take it easy. That's it. Debbie. I never should have tried. Tried what? Who was it, Debbie? Who did this? Who? Who got the letter, Debbie? Debbie. Marlo, did she... Did she pass out? For good, Maynard. She's dead. Oh, uh, She... She seemed to be mumbling something about a letter. Did you get what it was? Yeah, only part of it. A killer apparently took the letter away from her. Believe me, that's bad. Letter? What's a letter? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Huh? Oh, it's probably that pheasant again. Letters? What are you talking about, Oh, I guess I'm just getting jumpy. Hey. Hey, there is somebody. Come on, Pop. Sounds... Sounds like he's over there, Marlowe. Yeah, I can hear him. Oh, now, that that ain't gonna do you any good, son. Not in that brush, it ain't. And what's more... I wouldn't go any further if I was you. But Pop, all he needs is ten seconds and he can destroy that letter for good. Well, just to seem, there's a million and one places a killer can hide in there and lay for you, son. Yeah. Yeah, Pop, well, it's the moment it's a stalemate. I'd sure love to find out who that snake in the bush is. You know, 
I've run a peaceful place up until it's getting to be like one of them there movies. <laughs> Only thing left out is a posse. Yeah, you're so right. Murders in the night, lost letters. It's corny enough without a posse. Yeah, and uh, my dangers, too. Hmm? Yeah, I see what you mean. Are you ready to... Uh, to... Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, I'll lead you back to the office. My Jasper, I don't understand this one bit. Miss Jensen is stabbed to death over that letter, and in her dying... Hey. Huh? What is it? Shh. Up ahead there. What? Somebody duck behind that big tree. Keep the chair going, man. Walk what? on up the path. Don't let him know we spotted him. Go on, talk, talk. Well, I, uh, okay, sure, sure. I was saying, I don't understand. Well, our place here is generally as quiet as a tomb. As the old now, man grimly had led his way up the path, I followed a few feet behind. When he got even with the tree, I turned suddenly, took three fast steps, and grabbed him. Come here, you. Hang on to him, you. Hang on to him. Well, well. Mr. Leonard Gaines, the unimpeachable citizen himself, stand still, Gaines. Uh, uh, a gun. What's the idea, Marlowe? Try running and it'll come to you. I suppose you've got a legitimate reason for being here all thought up? I, I'm here because I, I've got a touch of arthritis. I need a treatment and a night's rest. Arthritis isn't all you're going to have if I find what I think I'm going to find in your pockets. Empty him, Buster. I'll I said empty him. Oh, all right, I'll, I'll empty them. That's better. The sharp, you're a witness, and I demand that you... Now, stop. Uh, just a minute, Mr. Gaines. You're in a pretty bad spot to demand anything. There. There's our baby. There's the letter we've been looking for. Pick it up, Gaines. Pick it up and read it. Now, now see here, Marlowe. See there, Gaines. Read it while you're able to. Yeah. My dear Debbie... If I didn't know you so well, I'd resent your stupid accusations. Now, look, Mark. Read it. We've already made our property settlement, as you're well aware, and you'll be a long time finding a court that says otherwise. Now you know where you can go, so why not get started as ever, Leonard? Oh, fine. That's as about as incriminating as a lecture on the family meat bill. Sharp, whose jurisdiction are we under here? Uh, why, uh, county sheriff's office. All right, call him. Also, call your man out on the highway and have him lock that main gate. Main gate? Yeah. Say, now, that's a good idea. I'll do it right now. now wait a minute. Have you got a gun? Yep, got a rifle. Been in the family for years. Can you use it? Well, uh, yeah, I reckon I can. Well, uh, where are you going? Out the roundup, Langley. He'll be pushing hard to give his boss's star witness here a big helping hand. I want to be in shape to push back. And remember, Pop, huh? keep your eye on Gaines and not on the phone when you make those calls. I'll see you. The second time that night, I started down the hill and toward the car lot, keeping in the shadows and moving slowly this time. Because it was odds on that Langley had taken everything in. And I knew that he'd try to part my hair with a gun barrel and pull Leonard Gaines out of the jam he was in the very first chance he had. So I stayed off the pads long enough to have both socks full of burrs when it happened. But not what I expected. It was the sharp family blunderbuster that exploded with a blast like a small howitzer. So also for the second time, I turned and ran back up the hill, this time to the office. I got there just as Maynard climbing hand over hand up a smoking rifle barrel made it to his feet. Maynard! Maynard, what happened? Where's Gaines? Well, I, I, I don't know. It got away, I guess. Well, the shot. What about that? It went up there, through the roof. Oh, fine. Well, gosh, I, I, I didn't suspect a thing. He just said he wanted to smoke. But he didn't happen to have a match, I know. So you hung your rifle over your arm, stuck both hands in your pockets to find one for him, and that's when he took you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Well, how'd you know? Never mind, Pop. Well, I, 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 I made a grab for him, though. Uh, ripped his coat about halfway off. Oh, that's great, that's uh, great. 
I, I, I'm sure sorry he got away, Mark. All right, don't worry about it, will you? Can't get far with the gate locked. Well, I, uh, I got bad news there, too. Oh, oh the gate's locked all right. But uh, there's a back road. There's a back what? Back road. Right, yeah, well, uh, right. Yeah. It ain't much. It's uh, rough and rocky, but it's passable. And uh, anybody's been up here as often as Mr. Gaines has, sure know about it. Oh, great. Look, Pop, can't you understand that there was a murder committed here tonight and we had the murder yeah, and but no my... buts? <sighs> Fell for the oldest gag in the world. But I was my... a sucker to turn him over to you. And will you stop waving that envelope? I just think you ought to see this. All right, what is it? Uh, oh, where'd you get all that loot? Gaines dropped it when I ripped his coat. Twenty grand, it says here on the wrapper. Something else written here, too. Casa Rolando de Barandido at ten. Casa Pop, that's it. That's the answer. Come on, we got to get down that back road in a hurry. <laughs> Sharp at the wheel of the pickup truck, we bounced over the pair of sometimes parallel ruts studded with stones the size of bowling balls. It was called a back road. The better part of two miles before he cut lights and motor and whispered that if Gaines was going to get stuck at all, it was sure to happen in a dry wash just around the next bend. I told him to wait and went ahead on foot. He was right. Gaines was stuck in more ways than one. His car was up to its hubcaps in sand and his wallet up to its stamp compartment in blackmail, conducted by his ex-wife's murderer with the same leather she'd had. The letter... It was Eugene Murray, and clenched in his hand was a tattered white envelope, nothing more. I'll make it easy for you. I held my thirty-eight in close my to my side and edged up behind them. Twenty thousand. Now, Murray, uh, I don't have that much. You lie. You're going to pay her that. I don't know. I know because we, we, we worked the deal out together. Only she got greedy, tried to double-cross me and pull it alone. Uh, so you killed her? Yes, I, I didn't intend to, but when I found out that she tricked me, I, I was furious. <laughs> first thing that I knew, I, I, I'd stabbed her. Yeah, that's enough of that. Just give me the money. You've nothing to worry about. Now, listen, Maori, I no, tell you, I... you listen, Gates. You're in no position to buy. It, it's better than having your $200,000 gambling debt exposed and your reputation ruined, isn't it? <laughs> or facing the trigger man, Langley, if you refuse to alibi for Jernigan, isn't it? Or bucking a perjury charge if you do alibi? Oh, no, no, no. You got yourself in the corner, Gaines. So pay off. Only 20 grand. But I tell you, Maori, I don't have it. You're lying again. Be... No, he isn't. Don't move. I don't want to be. Leave your hands where they are. I got the 20 grand right here, and it's pretty well earmarked as blackmail payment already. But just to round things out, Maori, I'll take that envelope you've got there. This? Well, what do you want this for? Funny man. Because it's no doubt postmarked with an hour, a date, and a location. Which, together with Brother Gaines' own handwriting, places him out of town on July 30th. A time he swears he was at his Malibu home all day with Jernigan. Right, Gaines? Uh, smart boy, aren't you, Marlowe? You've still got a chance, Gaines. You'd better gamble with me. You've got nothing to lose now. I'm with you. Stand still, Buster. Or, sir, help me out. Now, Gaines, go! Go! Oh! oh, my leg! Were you thinking of going someplace, Mr. Gaines? Uh, no. No, I... I'm not going anyplace, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> Well, Gail, the big show's about to start. Court will be in session in a few minutes. I know. And different from yesterday. Yeah. Oh, you did a swell job, Mr. Marlowe. Gee, gee, I don't know how to thank you. Save it, baby. 
If that scale Lady Justice holds in her hands is in better balance today, it was your hunch and old Maynard's blunderbuss did as much to put it there as my running around through the brush at Sulphur Springs. But all I knew was that Gaines was lying. I didn't know it was as complicated as it was. Well, that's because Debbie Jansen was twice as treacherous as we figured. I still don't understand. How did you know that Eugene Maury had killed Debbie? Well, you see, baby, I overheard her tell Maury that she was going to meet Gaines in the Beverly Crest Hotel at 10 for the payoff. Uh-huh. But I figured that was a lie strictly for Maury's benefit when Pop gave me the packet of money Gaines had dropped. It had that complicated name of a cabin in the time of the appointment, which was also ten, written on it. Mm. So I knew the real meeting was scheduled to take place out there. See? Oh, I see. Then she was going to send Maury off to the Beverly Crest while she collected the money at Sulphur Springs and then beat it alone. That's it, honey. You see, if her cabin had been named something simple like uh, number four, then Gaines could have remembered it. Instead of that... Casa Robino del Bangadoro, <laughs> whatever it was. He had to write down, you see. Well, then things might have been different. Ah, oh, you'd have found a way. After all, you figured out it was the postmark that was important. Only after I'd been slapped in the face by a perfectly harmless letter with no envelope. Had to be the postmark. What else? Oh, they're starting. Yeah. Good luck, Mr. Marlowe. Give him the works. Don't worry, baby. I'm the eager witness today. We're going to knock him dead. Literally. <laughs> they got it coming. I watched Jernigan's face as the preliminaries got underway. The killer was beaten. When the court finally settled down to work and the prosecutor took over, I listened to his deft build-up as he primed the jury and the dramatic ringmaster voice he used when he called... Will Philip Marlowe take the stand, please? Now, Mr. Marlowe, you told us yesterday that you are a private investigator. Now will you tell the court in your own words... What happened to you last night? I sat there looking into the cold, baleful eyes of the prosecutor and thought of a paraphrase on that wonderful quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes. It's not enough to ask for justice. One must also hope for mercy. Mr. Marlowe. Hmm? Oh, oh yes, I'm sorry. Well, it began here in this room yesterday afternoon at about 3.30 when the counsel for defense called a witness, a Mr. Leonard Gaines, to the stand. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy... Star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Joy Terry, John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, Junius Matthews, Ben Wright, Lou Krugman, Larry Dobkin, and Bud Whittem. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The trail started in Montana with a bum with two names rushing away from his lady love and led fast into L.A. past a southerner from Canada, a worried wool dealer and a chorus girl with a forty-five. When it finally stopped at murder in the park, the tramp was still in a hurry. You and I have a friend coming to call next Monday night. She's my friend Irma. 
If this beautiful, lovable, but dumb blonde isn't your friend now, she will be the moment you hear over most of these same CBS network stations next Monday following the Lux Radio Theater. My friend Irma will bring you plenty of laughs and great entertainment. So be sure to make friends with My Friend Irma these Monday nights on CBS, where you'll hear them all this fall. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts are heard Monday's The Columbia Broadcasting System. Be a bestseller. You bet. 
I'm going to get this into print as fast as the type can be set. It's a gold mine. Isn't that just the way, Jerry? A girl like Martha writing a book that'll make money, and, and she's got so much already, she doesn't know what to do with it. Well, she hasn't got the money, Pam. It's old Uncle Gordon. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish we could meet him. I'd just like to tell Beatrice Sam Stickle that I was hobnobbing with Gordon Gilroy, the millionaire banker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's seen. Well, you won't meet him on this trip. Martha said he had to go to Chicago on business. Jerry, do you think maybe we could wangle another invitation? Mm. You know there are real silk sheets on the bed. No. Mm-hmm. Well, come on, let's go downstairs and find Martha. She's probably anxious to hear our verdict on the book. Oh, I told her already. When I finished reading it this afternoon. Why, you precocious little brat. <laughs> Ouch! Well, come along. Let's go and tell her that I like it, too. I'm uh, thinking this is the library door, Mr. Nard. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Nard. Sure, you need a map to navigate around this house. <laughs> yes, you certainly do. Uh-huh. It's the library. Come on, Jerry. Martha said that she... Oh. Well? Excuse us, please. We didn't know that... One minute, young lady. Who are you? Uh, good evening, sir. You're Mr. Gilroy, aren't you? Yes, I am. Much more to the point. Who are you? I'm Joe North. This is my wife, Pamela. Uh, how do you do? May I ask what you're doing in my house? Why, we were invited by your niece, Martha. We understood you were in Chicago. This is a pleasant surprise. Uh, we have the big front bedroom and, and the lovely sitting room with the white satin curtains. Oh, party, huh? Then at my back's turn. Well, we're not exactly party guests, Mr. Gilroy. We came on business. Business? What business? Your niece has written a book I'm interested in publishing. So you're the publisher, huh? uh, You may have read I it. I have not. Very good. For your information, Mr. North, I disapprove of Martha's so-called literary efforts. He writes very well, Mr. Gilroy. And you've read the book? Oh, yes. North, that book is not for publication. But, Mr. Gilroy... When I give an order, it's to be updated. It seems to me, Mr. Gilroy, the business is between me and your niece. She wrote the book. I'm going to publish it. I say that you're not. Mr. Gilroy, nobody tells me what I can and can't do. Why, you insolent book peddler, you... Jerry, we'd better go. Yes, I think we'd better. Wait a minute. I said that book was not to be published. I beg your pardon, sir, but I say it is going to be published. Good night. Come back here. Jerry! What's the punishment? No gift. Oh. You better give it to him, Jerry. It's a little difficult to argue against the gun. Hand it over. All right. Here you are, sir. Oh, no, no, no. Look out, Jerry! Let's go! Oh, his gun! Let's go! Oh, Jerry! Let's go! Luscious Janet Blair. And just afterwards, as Mary was looking through a magazine, 
She found these words from Janet Blair bang in front of her eyes. You'll never die for popularity if you follow Hollywood in our new beauty discovery, Woodbury Beauty Night Cream. This three-minute bedtime care with Woodbury Cold Cream has all it takes to help skin look dazzling. I've never known any other cream so effective in giving a girl's face the luscious smoothness that makes men pay attention. So Mary rushed out and got Woodbury Cold Cream. That night, she started giving her skin the Woodbury Beauty Nightcap. And listen, a certain young man Mary had been secretly adoring, who'd never noticed Mary before, suddenly looked twice, started pursuing, started booing, and now they've named the day. Well, the moral is simple, girls. If your life is dull, manless, and dateless, doubtless it's because your skin needs a delicious smoothness that makes a man's top look and pursue. So... If you want the chance to say yes to romance, if you need a plan to captivate that man, if you wish he would woo, use Woodbury too. Why don't you, tonight, that Woodbury cold cream? And now, back to Mr. and Mrs. North. Twenty minutes have passed since the shooting in Gordon Gilroy's library. Police Sergeant Mullins has taken charge. The medical examiner is leaning over the body. Doc, are you sure he's dead? Well, Sergeant, when there's no breath, no pulse, and a bullet hole, <laughs> you can be sure the body's a corpse. Okay, Doc. Mr. North. Yes, Mullins. It's my unpleasant duty, Mr. North, on your own admission, to hold you for the murder of Gordon Gilroy. Oh, but, uh, Sergeant... It was an accident. Jerry didn't mean to do it. Yeah, I know, I know, but he's admitted the shooting. I want to warn you that anything you say will be used against you. Just, just a minute, Sergeant Mullins. Jerry's just trying to protect me. I, I'm the one who shot Mr. Gilroy. You? For heaven's sake, don't complicate it anymore. Now, now, don't listen to anything he says, Sergeant. When Jerry and Mr. Gilroy were fighting, the gun dropped on the floor, and, and I picked it up and shot him. Pam, will you stop this melodramatic nonsense? Oh, dear, this is terrible. Oh, i got to hold the boat here. Oh, say, hey, Barlins, would you come here a minute? Yeah, Doc. Is there any sign of light? Well, no, there ain't that, but uh, there's something else here. What's that? I uh, just turned the body over. And look. Oh, crying out loud. Stabbed in the back. Yep, that's what did it. He was knifed after he was shot. And the bullet lodged in the shoulder. But it wasn't fatal. Where's the knife? Well, of course, I'm just the doctor. <laughs> You're the detective. Well, thanks heavens he was stabbed. That clears Mr. and Mrs. North. What does it? Uh, say, Mr. North. Yes, Mom. Did you use a knife on the deceased? A knife? A knife. There wasn't any knife, Sergeant. Oh, my goodness. I'm glad to hear you say that. Of course, he was stabbed to death. Well, uh, just a minute. I'm I'm going, Mullins, now. And your men can take pictures. Oh, thanks, Doc. And if Lieutenant Wagon wants me, when he gets here, I'll be at the laboratory. So long, Sergeant. Uh, so long, Doctor. Jerry. It must have happened while you were out calling the police, and I was getting the first aid kit from upstairs. Yes. How long was you out of the room? Oh, not more than three or four minutes. Did you see anybody drifting around the halls about then? No, the phone's in the alcove in the hall. I could see the library door all the while. Nobody went in or out. Jerry, the murderer must have come in those French doors. Say, that's about the size of it. He could have come right in here and gone out again, and nobody's been the wiser. Where does that door lead to, Mullins? There's a terrace out here that runs the length of the house. The murderer must have been waiting out there while we were in here with Mr. Gilroy. Well, that could be. Cold as an Eskimo's nose outside. Well, we've got a job in our hands. We've got to find that knife. 
hold on now. Wait a minute. I told you to stay in the other room. Well, I, I can't say that with a servant. I'm so nervous I can't sit still. Mother, did your uncle have any enemies who want him out of the way? What do you mean? That shot didn't kill your uncle, Martha. He was stabbed in the back. Oh. oh have you any idea who could have done it? Well, I'm afraid he had a good many enemies. He was pretty ruthless in business. Yes, I can imagine that. Well, whoever did it knew something about the house. It was an inside job. I suppose you're right. Of course I'm right. Only somebody knowing the terrace and... Say, wait a minute. Why did you say that? Well, it was just that nobody knew Uncle Gordon was here. He was supposed to be in Chicago. I, whoever did it must have known he was in the house. All right. Who was in the house? Well, the servant. And anybody else? There's my aunt, Mrs. Gordon. Where is she? I don't know. She, she was upstairs earlier in the evening. You never mentioned your aunt to us, Martha. We seldom mention her to anyone, Sam. She walked out on Uncle Gordon about a year ago. This afternoon, she suddenly appeared and and said she wanted to talk to him and was going to wait until he came back. Uh, I guess we'll have to look up this lady. Anybody else? No. Oh, oh wait. Uh, Norman Cross. Who's he? Uncle Gordon. private secretary. He, he must have come back with Uncle Gordon. He was supposed to go to Chicago. Did you see him? No, I, I didn't even know Uncle Gordon was back until after the shooting. Well, there's another guy to round up. Where does he live? There's a room on the ground floor in the servant's wing. And I... Well, there's something you'll find out about him sooner or later. He, he embezzled $10,000 from Uncle Gordon. $10,000? Why didn't Gilroy turn him over to the police? He was going to, but he, he couldn't afford to until after the Chicago trip because, oh, Crosby had compiled some lists or, or papers. Well, oh. there's your motive. I'm going out and find this. Oh, Luke, I'm glad you got here. Hello, Sergeant. Hi, Pam. Sure. Oh, Hello, Bill, I'm Bill. so glad you got here. Oh, well, what's the case, Mullen? Over here, Luke, is the body. It's Mr. Gordon Gilroy, the banker. That guy who owns his house. Yes, Pam. This would be a wonderful time to look for that night. All the servants are in the next room. We could go through their things. Oh, Pam, we can't take any chances. I'm seriously mixed up in this business. And... Jerry, we must find that knife. There, there may be fingerprints. That's Bill Wigan's job. Now, now, darling, don't say another word. We're going to the servants' wing. <laughs> Shirt. That's where I always hide things at home. All right. 
The funny part is, we'll probably find that darn knife. Jerry! Jerry, come here. What? Look, this window leads right out to the terrace. You can see the French doors of the library from here. Well, what about it? Don't you see, dear? Crosby could have climbed out this window, sneaked along the terrace, and gone through those doors into the library. Yes, I suppose he could. And after... After he'd done it, he came back here... (laughs) You're certainly putting together a wonderful case. But, Jerry, don't you see? Everything fits. Crosby knew that Mr. Gilroy was in the library. And goodness knows he had good reason to want to get rid of him. Jerry, you're not paying a bit of attention. Okay. What? On the floor. There by the dresser. Jerry, is it really blood? Yes, I think so. Trails over to this door. Jerry, don't. Don't open that door. I'm afraid I must have. Look the other way, dear. All right, Jerry. Go ahead. Wait a minute. This honey business. 
Oh, well, you know. No, I don't know. Well, Sally and me, we've been going around together. Oh, I see. And what about it? You pick nice company, Mrs. Gilroy. The kind that leaves by the window. Sure, with the joint loaded with cops, I should stick around. <laughs> Come on. <clears throat> Back to the house before we freeze. Okay, I got nothing to hide. I was just waiting for it to get finished with the power. Come along, Jim. I'm beginning to shiver. Just a minute, then. What are you staring at? Look. There, on the side of the building. Where? The rain spot. Jerry. So that's why we couldn't find the knife. Listen, Lieutenant, I don't care if you lock me up or what you do. I didn't have nothing to do Red with it. Red was with me all the time. Sure. We were upstairs. Quiet, both of you. Oh, Bill, I'd like to see you. Oh, uh, just a did. second, Jerry. I want... What's the matter? You haven't found another body, have you? No, not yet, Bill. But we may. Well, what's up, Bill? When Pam and I were outside just now, we saw... Wait, Jerry. Wasn't Mr. Gilroy's gun on the desk there? Huh? Well, it's gone now. Hmm. Uh, just a minute. Jerry. I went out after that bottom. Did Mrs. Gilroy leave this room when I did? Uh, no, no. She followed us. Yeah. Do you think she picked up the gun then? Listen carefully. I need to take Red into the next room and turn him over to Mullins. You follow us. I want Mrs. Gilroy to be here alone. What do you think she'll do? Let's see. Jerry, Bill's setting a trap. Well, don't spring it. Mrs. Gilroy, you wait here. All right, Detective. All right, Red. Come with me. Sure, Lieutenant. Sure. Come along, Pam. Excuse us, please, Mrs. Gilroy. Indefinitely, dearie. That's that Mrs. Gilroy. You'd think I came here to borrow a cup of sugar. <laughs> Come on, Pam. Bill's gone in the living room. I wonder what that woman's going to do now that we... Jerry. What is it? Look. Across the hall, behind that screen... I can't see anything behind the screen. He's in the nearest What? It's Martha. She's got her hat and coat on. We'd better stop her, Jerry. Playing hide and seek, Martha? Oh, oh no. Don't tell anyone, please. I, I've got to get out of this house. You can't leave now. If you run away, Martha, they'll suspect you. I can't stay. Uncle Gordon's dead and, and Crosby and... I'm going to be next. Oh, believe me, you don't know what's going on in this house. I, I'm going to be next. I, I haven't a chance. Come into the parlor. You're shaking like a leaf. Now, there's a nice big couch. You stretch out there. Now, Mother, who's frightening you? Don't kill Ryan. She's the one who killed Uncle Gordon. How do you know? He, he wouldn't give her a divorce. She wanted to marry Red Bart. But she wouldn't kill him. You don't know her. She'd do anything to get what she wants. Wait a minute, Martha. Is she the woman you had in mind when you wrote your book? Yes. She tricked Uncle Gordon into marrying her. She spent his money like water. Why wouldn't your uncle divorce her? Oh, Uncle Gordon was no saint either. She, she had too much on him. If she were no longer his legal wife, she'd blackmail him out of every last cent. Well, he couldn't let her go. For, for his own protection. I'm going to get Bill Wagon. He should hear this. I'll be right back. Oh, Pam, I'm so frightened. I, 
Sally knows I suspect her. She's going to try to put me out of the way. Yeah, now, hold on. Oh, Pearl, I... Yeah, now, lie Try to be calm. Dan, would you get me some aspirin and water? I've got to have some. Of course, dear. Oh, thank you. I'll be back in a jiffy. Now, you just close your eyes. Jerry will be here with Bill and the Gilroy. Yes. And one of her victims was a political boss, an unscrupulous man who controlled millions and, and killed others for money. Yes. Was that man your uncle? No, no. no. Just an imaginary person. That's not the truth, Martha. That man was your uncle. No. Pam, I see what you mean. You're right. Cost you. That's why Gordon Gilroy didn't want the book published. What are you talking about? Every crime Gordon Gilroy ever committed was described in that novel. Detail by detail. It was taken from real life. You wrote that book to blackmail your own uncle. Why, Pam! Why, Pam, me. You're not as sweet as you look, Martha Gilroy. What are you driving at? You didn't expect your uncle back tonight, did you? And you didn't know that he was on to your blackmailing scheme... Until you saw him fighting with Jerry through the French doors in the library. You're crazy. Oh, no, I'm not. When your uncle was shot and Jerry and I left the room to get help, you saw a good chance to kill him. But you needed a weapon, a gun or a knife. What are you... So you grabbed the closest thing at hand, a heavy icicle hanging from the rain spout on the side of the house. How did... You're crazy. You stabbed your uncle with an icicle. No wonder we couldn't find a knife. She broke another one off to kill Norman Crosby. He saw her go into the library with the ice dagger. She killed him. All right, you're so smart. Figure this out. I just don't move any of you. So you took the gun, Miss Gilroy. A very clever observation, Lieutenant. Martha, you can't possibly get away. Give me that gun. (laughs) Don't make matters worse. You probably had a good reason for killing your uncle. The court will take things into consideration. Yes, I had a good reason to kill him. He murdered my father. That's how he got all his money. He drove dead to suicide and stole every cent. Gordon Gilroy, the great philanthropist. Put down that gun. I'm not through with it yet, Lieutenant. There's one more death on the books of the Gilroy family. Mother, stand back. I don't want to have to kill you. Jerry, somebody did do something. I'm the only one who could do anything, and and here goes. So long, everybody. Down! Look out, Pam. Oh, 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 don't give me that gun. Oh, stop it. Let me go. Let me go. Oh, let me do it my own way. Nice work, Jerry. You pulled that rug from under her just in time. Jerry, how did you ever think of it? Mullen, take care of Miss Gilroy. Okay, Luke. <laughs> All right, Miss, come along with me. You take the prize. How did you know Martha was, was the one? Well, I, I knew she was lying, so I, I just put two and two together. 
sure enough, she was the one. How did you know she was lying? And what about? I'll try to make sense here. Well, it was right after somebody shot at Martha in this room. I, I was the first one in here, remember? Yes. Well, Martha said the shot came from the French doors. But when I ran in, I smelled burnt powder and saw smoke hanging in the center of the room. She stood right here in the middle of the room and fired that gun herself. Nice going, Pam. Poor Martha. Oh, but Jerry. Now you can't publish that book. Yep. There goes a bestseller right out the window. <laughs> A mink coat costs a lot, but the luxurious-looking, luscious complexion that goes with it can be yours for so little. Use Woodbury Cold Cream. You just can't give your skin better care at any price. A test by more than a thousand women proved that. They use Woodbury in some of the costliest creams, all in plain, unlabeled jars. And a majority preferred Woodbury Cold Cream. For beauty results, they found it outstanding. Now, don't be surprised. Remember, Woodbury Cold Cream is made by skin scientists, experts in skin care for more than 60 years. It contains four special softening and smoothing ingredients, plus an element that works to keep the cream in the jar pure to the last. The world's costliest creams don't bring you that. You can try wonderful Woodbury Cold Cream for a mere 10 cents, or buy the big economy jar. You get over 10 times as much for just 75 cents. If, after using Woodbury only seven days, your skin isn't softer and smoother, lovelier. Then return the jar to Woodbury at Cincinnati, Ohio, and you'll get twice what you pay. That's W-O-O-D-B-U-R-Y. You'll save by switching from your expensive cream to Woodbury. Buy war stamps with that saving. Why not get Woodbury cold cream right now? <laughs> again next Tuesday evening at the same time for another adventure of Mr. and Mrs. North, when a barefooted corpse manages to put his shoes on. For thrills and for laughs, be sure to listen, won't you? This is Ben Grauer saying goodnight for Woodbury Cold Cream, the beauty cream for the skin you love to touch. This program came to you from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.